and welcome back to Dollars and Dragons. Today I have with me Banana Chan, if you'd like to introduce yourself to our audience. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I am Banana Chan. My pronouns are she, they, and he. I'm the owner of a small box board game and RPG publishing company called Game & Curry. Uh, we have published several games in the past, such as Battle of the Boy Bands uh, by Yansu Kim and Vicky Ho and, uh, and Lair by Tam. Uh, but I also do contract work on the side. So I also do work for other companies, uh, such as Wizards of the Coast. Uh, I've done work for them. I've done work for Critical Role. Uh, and I've also done work for Renegade. Wow, that's like, so first of all, um, I was doing some research for this podcast. And then I was like, wait, Banana Chan has a Wikipedia page. I don't know to do, need to do any work. <laughs> <laughs> I could just show up and pull up the Wikipedia page and I'm just ready to interview you. So I could just go, we could just go through this and I'm just going to hit every single, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. But <laughs> I am very curious about something that we we don't have too many game designers who are also YouTubers. Sometimes I bring people on who are YouTubers kind of adjacent to the space or who yeah. do other things related to tabletop or cover tabletop. But very rarely do I meet a game designer who also does a YouTube channel. Um, let's talk about your YouTube channel. Uh, it's mostly it looks like uh, the link is going to be in the description for Banana Chan's YouTube channel. Highly recommend you check it out just for anyone who is not aware, um, especially if you're in industry professional or you're trying to be banana chan drops some of the best educational content that you can find on the internet um so i highly recommend that let's how did this get going like uh when you started your youtube channel um it looked like it was uh you did some videos like back in the day and then uh you came back in the last couple of years um to sort of introduce a lot of educational content. What sparked that and how'd you get here? Yeah, so um, I could preface this by saying that I was previously a video producer for, uh, for a company, for a management consulting firm. And um, in my past, I went to art school for video art. And so uh, I sort of like had my start in video work uh, for a long period of time. And I also... Uh, did a lot of freelance work for other companies. So Bully Pulpit, I did their uh, video for Starcrossed. Um, actually, I worked on uh, a few videos for them. Starcrossed, uh, Ghost Court. Uh, I worked with Ad Magic on a few of their videos. Um, and so a lot of the stuff was just like freelance stuff. I was just like, yeah, I, I do video and I like games. Like might as well, you know, do a few videos if you need help. And so that's where it sort of started. Uh, and then I started writing my own stuff. And I was just like, I'm going to take a break on the video stuff because I'm already doing it for my day job. I just want to like, you know, have that separation. And so I paused on making video content for like games for a while uh, until recently last year, I was just like, I learned a lot of stuff. And people ask me a lot of questions about like, you know, how I got my start and like, you know, how they can get into the industry. And so I was just like, might as well make a video, like a, a YouTube channel, just like with a bunch of videos that explains like, you know, how you can get your start. Um, hopefully some of the stuff is obviously all of it's like anecdotal. It's like a lot of stuff that I learned uh, through my experiences uh, working in the industry. So I'm just like, hey, like, you know, if some of this resonates, then great. Uh, you know, here are some tips. Here's some uh, stuff that I learned. Hopefully it can help you um, in, you know, trying to trying to create something. And so uh, that's sort of how it all happened. 
Yeah, I I really like your educational work on YouTube, especially because it's so earnest. And it's a lot of the time when you find stuff, especially YouTube con it, con content, um, any sort of video, it's like, it sort of leans into being sensational, whereas this is all value. Um, so it's, so it's like, it's, it's like really good content to consume. And it's honest. And that's just I think it's very important for uh, people within the industry, if they're trying to become professionals, like they're finding that uh, those honest sort of sources and mentors and people that are good educators. Um, that's another thing that I think you're good at. We'll talk about in a moment. I wanted to segue real quick. Um, do you know Alex Roberts? I do. Yes. What a cool person, right? Like, so cool. Yeah. yeah. And now they're like, what, very close to where I'm at, um, just because like I recently moved to the West Coast, so I'm just like we're in the same time zone now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, uh, I believe she said it on my podcast. I want to say where she, I don't know if she said it on my podcast or if she just said it to me. I'm not going to say where she lives. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah, so yeah, and you know me being in the same area, yeah, it's it's kind of funny. But um, yeah, there's just uh, there's something about like the way. Obviously, it's because of her professional life, right? That she's mm-hmm. able to like talk to people and have these really super interesting and like engaged conversations with people um but yeah it has definitely taken the time to build up uh their their skill their their skill level at conversations is just like way up here so always a fun person to talk to alex but about your youtube channel back to that so you've been doing some uh vlogs basically of like some of the conventions that you've gone to um and that seems like something that's uh both kind of like a fun project and also something that um not very many people do well, I would say, uh, in just in general. But as far as uh, you going to these different conventions and stuff, how many do you have lined up for this year? And how many have you done? And like, because this is like, this list is getting pretty long on these on these vlogs. <laughs> so to be honest, uh, for this year, I'm hoping to cut back a little bit just because of the the move. Uh, so uh, for for transparency, like I just basically moved from like the East Coast to the West Coast, and it took a lot of me to be honest. Yeah. Um, and so uh, because of that, I'm scaling back a little bit on conventions. Uh, and also just like, because how I feel like because um, for some strange reason, like previously with all the mass mandates and everything, like I felt like a lot safer uh, at these conventions, even though they were like massive and, you know, all these things were happening. I somehow felt safer then than I do now. And so now I'm just like a little bit hesitant about going to a convention. Um, but that's just me. Like, you know, obviously if, uh, professionals have to go to a a convention that's like, you know, a lot of people that is their bread and butter, like they have to go. Right. Uh, luckily for me, I have the privilege of, um, you know, choosing not to, not to go to a convention if I don't have to. Uh, but the one that I am going to, the big one is big bad con. So I would never miss big bad con for anything. Um, especially because they are so safe with like, you know, uh, masking and like their their vaccines and everything and also just like you know the community is so amazing and uh, they they put you know everyone's safety and comfort like at the the top of their list right it's always a priority so that's a big one for me yeah I you know every person that I talk to uh, who talks about Big Bad Con it's pretty much the same thing where it's like this is the most amazing experience of my life <laughs> oh yeah have you gone yet no I have not I. <sighs> 
I was uh, I was thinking about going this past year in 2022, um, and I just couldn't afford it essentially uh, at the time. So I'm hoping this year maybe I'll be able to go. I it's my it's the number one con that I would like to go to. I have to go to another convention this year for work, but um, that is like. I have to go there. I don't necessarily like the area or anything <laughs> like that. You know, it's not like a fun area to go to. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, San Francisco, San Francisco, right? Yes. For Big Bad. Okay. Yeah. San Francisco. I actually have some friends on the start playing team, like, uh, like Devin and Shireen. And um, it'd be great to see them and just, you know, hang out. I went, I went drinking with them at, at last Gen Con. Um, and we went to like four different places um, after the start playing games. Um, uh, That's awesome. Sort of like mixer that we did or whatever. Um, and we ended up like closing down a, a couple of different bars. But like, yeah, that, <laughs> nice. I, lo- I love that. I love the start playing games team. Um, they're just very like fun and warm and just like, I don't know. They're, they are like the group of people that should have been around within like tabletop games. Like in, I think, when virtual tabletops were first coming out you know what i mean like i don't know they're the way that they manage uh like growth and community and dealing with uh like me as a professional gm and like everybody that they interact with is just i think a plus um so i can't say good enough things about them obviously i like built my living on them so like my first year on the website i made like fifty one thousand dollars like as a freelancer so um which is like more than some full-time tabletop professionals make and i was just running games as a as a gm and that was like from nothing to that so in this year i'm looking at like i think 80 90 um i'm not gonna push as much because like 15 games a week was too much so i found that limit and i could do that for a short period of time um but now i'm like 7 to 12 and i can fluctuate between those amounts and like still do my design and writing amazing Um, that's so good i i you know i you know whenever i whenever i make it quote unquote um I'm going to cut down on more of those games to like maybe four games a week or less, but it's a good, I would recommend it as a part-time, especially for a lot of people in the tabletop industry. And that's how I uh, try to platform it. It's good as a part-time, but it's, it's, um, it's very stressful as a full-time job to be quite honest. Cause free freelancing, as you know, as a freelancer, uh, (laughs) is very up and down. So yeah, um, I made, I think like last year, the most I made in my freelancing game design career was I think it was like twenty three or twenty five thousand dollars, and that was it. Uh-huh. It's like yeah, not sustainable. It's not. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not. Um, when I talk to people like who have been in the industry since the two thousands, like Brian Cortijo, who wrote for like Dragon Magazine back in the day, you know what I mean, and you know is still doing gigs with uh, Wizards and Paizo, and like he has a full time job, like most of the other contributors. Yeah. Um, and even when I talk to some of the other freelancers who are full time, the only reason they're able to, uh, go full time has been because they have like a supportive, like other element at home. So if you're like just a person without like a supportive structure, it can be really Mm -hmm. difficult to be a full time freelancer. So yeah, I wonder, I wonder like, what's the tipping point and like, when do we get to that point when we eventually like, we can support people, uh, more often as free time uh, freelancers, but, Mm -hmm. um, I think um, there, there's like that, I, I guess there's that 
separation between like i this conversation comes up often in like these freelancer discords that it can be really difficult to do everything that you need to do to make a successful product and um mm -hmm. so you have marketing right and then you have oh, God, yeah. everything involved with game design and writing and then product project management and there's like these three different things that you need to be really good about and then community management as well how are you what are your strengths and like what do you think you do really well as a freelancer and as a game designer to be successful where you're at and like how have you like doubled down on like what you're good at and like what do you do to sort of ensure yourself against the things that you don't like to do and you aren't good at? Yeah. So I think that, um, I think there are a couple of things, right? So I think that in terms of freelancing, uh, first of all, to define like, you know, freelancing from like the IPs that I own and create. So for freelancing and contract work, I am very much aware that I'm making something for someone else. Uh, you know, the 10 cents a word or five cents a word in some cases, uh, and sometimes even 20 uh, cents a word or 25 cents a word. Like, I know that this is going to be something that's going to be made for another company. And like, you know, uh, whatever this thing is, like, they're going to take it, they're going to edit it, and they're going to like, you know, they own it, essentially. And so I'm not going to get royalties from it. I know I'm just going to get like a lump sum, and I'm just going to walk away with that, right? And occasionally, um, it's not a lot of money, but that's okay. Like I have that understanding when I sign a contract. Uh, for IPs that I, uh, intellectual properties that I own, um, that's a different story because uh, when it comes to that, I sort of have to think about like, you know, am I going to be self-publishing this? Am I going to be, you know, sending it off to a publisher to, you know, basically like pitch to a publisher and say like, hey, like take my IP and like license it and do whatever with it. Um, or am I going to be working with like a, a publisher in co-publishing this thing? And so, uh, with my publishing company right now, like, I feel like I've learned a lot about my strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and I don't touch my weaknesses at all. I just outsource it. So like, you know, some of the things I don't, uh, necessarily have the bandwidth to do or like the capacity to do, or even the understanding to do, um, you know, I'll just like hire someone else to like take that on. Uh, for example, like illustration, graphic design, like I'm not going to do that myself, uh, because you know, I am not a graphic designer. I don't have that eye. I'm going to ask someone else who is a professional to do that for me. Um, and so, uh, stuff like that, like, even though like I could definitely like take it on myself, I'm just choosing not to because it's not, I don't think it's my, uh, it's like a, a strength of mine. So um, when self-publishing, I feel like you have to take into consideration like all of these types of things because you're making your own business. It's like a small business, right? Like each individual project that you have, uh, it falls under your umbrella of like a small business. And so uh, when self-publishing, thinking about like marketing and thinking about like, you know, um, the arts and thinking about the layout and editing and, you know, doing all sorts of things, uh, sensitivity consulting, sensitivity reading, um, you know, all of these different things, I feel like... Um, Obviously, like if I'm creating my own work, I have to hire an editor because I can't just edit my own work. Uh, that would just be, you know, I, I feel like that would be counterintuitive. And also like they would spot things where I would not have like, you know, insight on and, you know, same thing with like sensitivity readers, right? Like the reason why we has, have sensitivity readers is so that they can read through the document and like, you know, basically like point out the the areas where, uh, where there might be challenges and you should, you know, consider editing it or consider like letting your editor know and like, you know, working together with them and like uh, making sure that that's, um, you know, it's sort of like a collaborative, uh, a collaborative piece in that 
in that sense. Um, and so when you're doing like, I think um, anything that's very based around like having a small business or like, you know, doing something that's, uh, that's all on you, you have to think about like wearing a lot of different hats. Uh, for me, I'm very good at project management. And so like project management is probably one of the strong points that I have uh, alongside with like writing stuff. And so those two are like the key areas where I like focus on when I'm doing um, when I'm doing like my own publishing for my own IP. Uh, however, when I take it to like another publisher, I'm just like, here, you tackle all this, you can figure all of this stuff out. I'll, you know, do my tasks, I will, um, you know, manage all of the tasks that I, that I promise I will do hit my milestones, hit my deadlines and uh, <laughs> give my in input into, you know, art, or graphic design occasionally, but the rest of it, like, I am happy to just give it to you. And you can sort of figure it out from there. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, that's something that I came to the conclusion of. And I personally really like doing now is that I have hired a project manager for like my future projects and like me wrapping up post Kickstarter. Now I'm, I have a project manager cause I'm like, I just want to be creative for my own work. Now I just want to be the creative department and like, I can have someone else be a project manager. I hired someone who's also a writer. So we'll bring them in and we'll have them do some writing for some of these projects um, as well on the side. And uh, you know, they'll, they'll get that and then they'll also be the project manager. So it's like a, it's a good deal for them as well in that respect. But we're going to talk about project management. Now <laughs> I love project. So I am normally the project manager. So I, um, where did you get started on project management? And like, what was some of the better resources that you used when you were learning about it? And how does your workflow? Let's start with the small questions first. Where did you start? And like, how did you start building up your skills for project management? Yeah, so um, I worked for a project or sorry, a management consulting firm for uh, some period of time. And I think that I learned some of the skills there. Um, I was fortunate enough where they were uh they were basically like uh, very happy with me, like taking on project management courses, taking Scrum, uh, you know, Scrum Master courses, uh, getting Scrum Master certified, and all of that stuff. Uh, and so it was a relatively agile place I worked at um, because it was sort of like an incubation uh, incubation lab. Like they were talking about, like you know, uh, creating workshops. A lot of the work that we did was like creating workshops for like you know uh, other businesses, uh, trying to make sure that they understand like how. Uh, what customer needs are and like, you know, what are some products and services that we can offer out of these workshops and like, you know, brainstorming and, you know, having that collaborative thinking uh, with executives from different businesses. And so um, that's sort of where I learned a lot about, uh, you know, this type of stuff where I was just like, okay, like I understand like, you know, this, this flow and this process now. Um, while I was working there, I also went to school at NYU for, uh, for my master's, which was in, uh, uh, it's got a long title. It's no longer available anymore. Like I think like the courses, they like stopped having them for some strange reason. Oh. So it's like, you can't even look it up anymore, but I swear I yeah. do have this degree. Um, yeah. It's uh, for graphic communications management and technology, which is like a mouthful. And like, what does it mean? Right. Uh, it's mostly just a management type of gotcha. like, or project management type of um, thing. So, uh, so yeah, I think that's sort of where I got like a little bit of this, uh, the skill set from. Yeah, you're, so you're a legacy character class. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> it's, I mean, I feel like being educated in it, like, you know, going to school for it is very different from like actually doing it, right? Like actually executing on like, yeah. um, you know, creating plans and like making the strategy and, you know, all of that stuff. Like, I feel yeah. like it's very different. 
because when you like actually do it, there's like, there's stuff that you have to keep in mind because, um, you know, you're working with people. You're not working like, you know, in a, this like small environment of like a classroom where you're just like learning and absorbing all the stuff. You actually have to consider like, you know, how are people going to react to my plans? How are people going to um, react to like the ways that we talk about like brainstorming or workshopping, uh, you know, all of those, those kinds of things. And so like, I think that, um, yeah, that was something that I had to sort of learn uh, in the, in the job space, um, and later yeah. on try to implement that into, into my freelancing, uh, world <laughs> games world. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, it is, it is kind of weird, like thinking about application as opposed to like education. And sometimes you'll end up learning a lot of very core foundational stuff that just doesn't, there's like the job as it's meant to be, and then there's the job as the reality and like being in the in the real world and like actually doing it. And that has evolved in a much quicker rate yeah. than the education system, for instance. Yeah, I'm curious about like, uh, so I, I know a few people who have done like uh, Scrum then. That's what it's called, right? Scrum. Yes. My all of my project management stuff is like from the military, but obviously that was like regiment a certain way and then like very different in many respects for uh, good and bad reasons. But I'm kind of curious, what is the for you in like doing like scrum certifications? Do you remember how long that normally takes people uh, to oh. achieve those? Is that like a six month course or what? It was like two days, two, two days. days. Oh, yeah. I better sign up. Yeah. I mean, it's expensive. That's the one thing. Like if you have a company that'll back you up and be like, yes, I will give you money for it. Like do it. Um, But I think that uh, it it is an interesting course. It's very, um, it's very good to know. I feel like it's more applicable than like me going to get my master's for management for some strange reason. Um, Actually, I think the reason why I think that is uh, what you just said was basically like application versus like um, versus like absorption of like, you know, whatever you're, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're learning in a classroom. Um, and <laughs> as an example, uh, when I was in, uh, when I was doing my master's, um, one of the people that we had to learn about and like read up on was Peter Drucker. And uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the name. That uh, sounds familiar. Let me, <laughs> let me Google it real quick. He is. Uh, so as some background for like who Peter Drucker is. Uh, he wrote this book, I believe it was called uh, Effective, I forget what, what the actual title is, but it's basically about like effective management and being like an effective ex- executive. Um, and it's very outdated. Like it's a very outdated book. Some of the stuff that he talks about in his book is actually pretty much applicable. Like, you know, you can apply some of the principles, but at the same time, the book is very outdated. Uh, it does not, you know, really reflect with how you should be thinking about your current workforce. Um, And also Peter Drucker himself never worked in an office. Like he wrote this book and he was just like, yes, this is how offices should be managed. But like he never worked in one. (laughs) And so um, it's like an interesting, like sort of like, okay, like take it with a grain of salt. Some of the stuff is, you know, is good. Some of the stuff is very like, you know, uh, it, it does resonate, but like, you sort of have to think about like, you know, how you want to manage your time and, uh, you know, how you manage, how you communicate with others uh, that fits more with like the modern framework versus like what is being said in this book. So something yeah. to keep in mind. 
Yeah, yeah. I now that I've actually looked at him and I'm thinking about it, like I have learned about Peter Drucker in college. Yeah, <laughs> I so it's some basic like 101 management classes, and it was just like I was just basically just doing them because it was like my pathway to my degree, which I have since like you know fuck that. But yeah. <laughs> um, I've done like I've done about three years of school, so. Um, but yeah, I, at college, I mean, so, but yeah, so it's, it's one of those things like it's where, how, how are you spending your time and is your time spent valuable for your mm-hmm. skill building? Something that's very difficult to sort of evaluate and assess, um, accurately. Why I really like resources like Storytelling Collective on the internet and, uh, you can sign up for a course. It'll take you a, a week or two. Sometimes they pace them out to be a little bit longer and you learn so much about like applicable skills that you can use use to make something like they have the objective clearly laid out this is how you create this type of adventure and how you get it published and it's like step by step by step by step and i can't say good good enough things about uh what ashley warren and her team have done over there at storytelling collective for that reason that's awesome yeah i um that's actually like when I was first starting to get involved in the scene, I was like very interested in storytelling collective for that reason, because I'm like, I would rather pay the 15 to 25 or whatever the course was. Um, they kind of vary in price, but I would rather pay that 20 bucks and like get good applicable information. Yes. Than just like sort through all of this bad advice. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's a lot of, I mean, especially right now, right? Like we have social media, we have like all these different platforms where we get our news from. It's like, you know, there's so much noise and there's so much information. Not all of it is going to be applicable to like, you know, it's not one size fits all, right? And a lot of it you sort of have to like figure out for yourself or like learn for yourself and any sort of like, you know, resources where things are organized in a fashion where it's like digestible, first of all, like it's, yeah. it's gold, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's tough. It's definitely a skill. And one of the things that I find that uh, when I get good feedback, I'm looking for people who like when I put out educational material, anyway, I'm looking for people to tell me like, this was easy to understand, this was mm-hmm. actually applicable. And when I look at a lot of the stuff that kind of gets put out there, it's stuff that um, is sort of not geared towards um, accessibility. Because if you're not making your stuff accessible to like the beginner, then you're just not making it for the beginner. Like you're expecting them to like come back to your program or your educational tool or whatever when they have more experience. And then it doesn't they don't need that stuff because they learn all those things the hard way right? (laughs) along the way. Yeah. But yeah. So yeah, that's what honestly, we're just coming back full circle. This is why I like your YouTube channel. (laughs) Um, Thank you. um but yeah let's talk about uh let's talk about let me check the wikipedia entry real quick <laughs> uh, let's talk about uh zhang Shi. Yeah. um i am i'm genuinely like when i look over uh zhang Shi and i'm like glancing over it and i look at the table of contents and i see here um and let me get like kind of serious because it's a serious topic um and i see here um playing a racist non-playable character safely mm-hmm. um i'm like okay this is a different kind of book like this is this book here is providing a lot of um, not only educational tools but safe tools for people to explore very difficult topics yes what do you want to tell people about zhang Shi and like your process of developing it and what went into that so that section was actually not in the book in the beginning until we started talking to james mendez hodes and 
when we were explaining him to, uh, the, the concept in general, he was just like, yes, very much into it. Let's go through this. Um, and when we were, you know, just going through it, like what we were thinking about most of all was like, what if players were playing characters that were not like themselves? That was our biggest concern. Like if they were not Asian, how can they play Asian characters? And so we wanted to invite James on to like basically work with us in thinking like, okay, how do we think through this? Because neither Sen or I, uh, we're not sensitivity consultants. We're not sensitivity readers. Uh, I do not consider myself like a, uh, like a, a cultural consultant or anything uh, like that, because I don't think that I have the training for it. Um, uh, because it, it, believe it or not, it requires like a whole other set of like, you know, understanding uh, of like how to talk to people about that kind of stuff. And so we uh, worked together with Mendez on it. And uh, he brought up, yes, this is a great point. You are correct that we should work together on, you know, trying to provide tools for players who are going to be playing characters that are not like themselves. But at the same time, let's talk about the GM and how they might have to create NPCs in this world that is, you know, from a time period that wasn't that long ago, um, who might be an antagonist, like, you know, a racist antagonist, how are we going to approach that? And so Sen and I, we didn't even think about that, right, until we brought on James, uh, brought on Mendez. And Mendez was just like, we should talk about this, we should figure out like, you know, a plan for this, just to, you know, make sure that our players, uh, and the GM like knows how to play, uh, play in a safe space and also just like make sure that they don't uh, harm anyone in the process of like, you know, playing this game. And so that's one of the reasons why we have that, uh, that section, because Sen and I were just like, yes, this is absolutely correct. Like we have to make sure that like, you know, the, the GM knows how to, how to uh, mitigate that and like make sure that their players don't get hurt in the process. Like, yes, we want to explore like, you know, all these difficult topics, but we also want to make sure that they, um, you know, they, uh, they're having fun doing it. And so um, one of the big things that we realized was that, um, you know, there's always been, uh, I feel like there's, there's two things when it comes to like uh, more like darker and more like sensitive topics like this. Uh, and, you know, one of the ways that it gets pushed back from bringing it into like a game table is, um, you know, players don't want to play this because they want to have fun. Okay. But like, what if players want to explore like other ideas? What do we do then? And so um, that's one of the, the, the things that we get pushed back from. And then the other is that like, you know, we don't care about our players, right? Like there's like sort of these two ways of thinking where it's just like, we don't want to have this because we want to have fun versus like, we don't want to have this because this is the time period. And like, you know, we have to play it like this. And so having these guidelines really, I think helps the the player understand like, yes, you can talk about these dark topics, but like, let's make sure that we're all on the same page here. Uh, and we're not like, you know, hurting anyone. And so one of the things that Mendo suggested was uh, making sure that the the GM, when they're playing the NPC, like a racist antagonistic NPC, that they uh, don't say the things out loud. Like they do not say slurs. They do not use like you know terrible uh, you know terrible bad language that like will actually impact the player's uh, you know mental health. Uh, instead, uh, describe what you're going to do and um, you know describe what the the NPC is going to do uh, and going to say. So, for example, like the um you know say for example it's like in a situation where it's uh it's one of the family members they're encountering like a police officer and you know the uh the gm might say something like uh the police officer says you know uh 
says a slur at you and, you know, tries to, tries to like, uh, antagonize you. Uh, and that is like, that's already enough. That's enough information that we need to know, right? From there, like, let's make this, let's give the player the agency to like, you know, react to that and, you know, do what they need to do um, in order to like have their scene versus like actually acting it out and like doing all these terrible things because that will actually like hurt the player. Um, and so making sure that like players understand that they can play in this space, they can, you know, the GM can play in this space, the GM can like, you know, explore these sensitive topics, but making sure that they have the framework to like, hurt anyone i think that i just keep going back to this where it's just like let's make sure that we don't hurt anyone let's play in these you know we can play with these sensitive topics but like let's just like not um let's not hurt anyone in the process so that was really important to us and that's where it came about yeah i can i can definitely see that not only in that section and all the other sections of the game you provide a lot of information about the different uh groups within uh chinatown and some of these other like locations and these other groups uh, from all around the world who sort of have gathered historically within Chinatown and like the the relationships between these groups and like the dynamics between them. Um, and it, when you say that, like uh, you, one of the things that you've really focused on in your game design is like to play it safely and not hurt people. And this stuff comes up in games, at least for me as a pro GM, like sometimes, so I run Vampire and Vampire is like potentially like one of the, it's it's a fucking dangerous game for sensitive topics mm-hmm. because like that shit is like, there's the least amount of barriers between you and a vampire than any other game because like you were a person who was born in the 70s or 80s if you're a neonate right Right. or the 90s um you know you got your gen z vampires now (laughs) but um yeah so like um and i had this come up once where i just had this uh this elder vampire this this older vampire uh who had this southern accent and they found out that she was from georgia one of the players was like i bet she owns slaves and i was just like okay we're gonna stop here i'm not running a racist plot line like i i do not have the capacity to do this like both long term and i don't have the capacity to wrap this up in a very responsible way um because i just don't have enough training to do this safely and especially because we have uh i mean like regardless but especially because we had a black player at the table and i was like so what happens if you lose so what happens if you leave the game early? Then you've just interacted with this racist villain for this many like months or whatever, and like there's no closure for you. There's no catharsis. You know what I mean? So like I think those are all things to like really consider, like when you're talking about like dealing with sensitive topics. Like mm-hmm. what is the endpoint? What is like? Can you guarantee that you're going to get to the catharsis of like an interaction like that? That's going right. to be really traumatic for people, right? Yeah. So exactly. Yeah, and I think that when it comes to things like that, like definitely giving the player the player agency over an npc like that like having the the agency to say like i can make the choices to change you know the this interaction or i can make the choices to like you know um to change the way that the scene is going like that's really important um because i think that like at the end of the day yes we want to tell a story yes we want to like you know hit as a gm like hit those those plot points but we want to make sure that like you know the npcs that we have that are antagonistic like they they might push a little bit but have it so that you know the player that you're playing with they can have the agency to like to come back and overcome like, you know, the challenge or like the, you know, the, the thing that's going on uh, versus the other way around, because we don't, there, there is a, 
and you know, I hate to say this, but like we we already have like a, a sort of like power imbalance when it comes to like GM and versus player. Like the GM already has a storyline. The GM is like you know sort of in charge of like what's going on and pushing the for the story forward. But like in order to make it like a, a good experience for everyone at the table, when it comes to um, you know someone who is going to uh, not necessarily look out for the the player's character's best interests, uh, the best thing to do, I think, in my mind, is to give the player as much agency over the situation as possible so that, that way they can you know push back at the antagonistic npc and overcome them absolutely it's 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 um it's a conversation that you can have uh between gm and player like out of character and like you can just yes. have that privately and like what is the outcome that you're desiring and like how we get there like we can figure out like the journey and have that process mm-hmm. that doesn't ruin things like i think some people kind of get married to this idea of like the sanctity of the story um but that's like that's such an ego thing i think because that's like the gm saying that everybody else's story at the table doesn't matter only the one that i'm telling which i think is what i think think is bullshit but um yeah absolutely and um i i get always get really excited when i see uh when i see rpgs um that have all this information because um especially for playing uh people other than yourself as well like playing the other is so i guess it's considered because we're, we've sort of integrated our view of tabletop games with actual plays when that's not the case right they're two separate things there's a big difference between like going on and like having an alt-white cast and playing zhang chi as an actual play and then playing zhang chi with your group of friends who happen to be white you know what i mean like yeah you can play zhang chi as like a you know group of white friends that's perfectly fine and you have the tools to be able to do that and to explore that and that's going to be like better than uh some of the other orientalist um ttrpg examples that you might come across right so it's just one of those things i think it's it's difficult to like i guess divorce people from the idea that they just don't know enough or they can't treat something like uh responsibly because no one likes to hear that right yeah no one no one likes to hear that oh you 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 probably just need to learn more you know what i mean yeah i think we created this as a response to like a lot of the orientalist games that we saw at the time uh like there were definitely like a lot of games that i had played that were that i considered um not necessarily respectful for like for me as an Asian person. And so um, one of the reasons why we made this game was just to like, you know, provide tools and guidance for people who, you know, maybe are interested in the themes of like, you know, uh, a Chinese American restaurant or like a Chinese American like experience. And they just like, you know, are interested in like, what is the history? Like, what is like, you know, what, what happened? Right. And so like, that's one of the reasons why we made the game. Like the first and foremost reason why we made the game was because uh, we wanted to have like, you know, a game for Chinese Americans, Chinese Canadian players, you know, um, just like keeping that in mind. But we also needed to consider like, you know, this game is going to get into the hands of people that are not, uh, they're not, you know, Asian, or uh, maybe they're not, you know, from an immigrant family. And so we put those tools into the game just so that we can say like, hey, like, you know, this is how this is our history. This is like, you know, how we view the world. And this is how you can sort of uh, understand it better. And this is where we're coming from versus like another type of game that might be a little bit more, you know, orientalist, like, 
why don't you check out this one instead? So yeah. that's that's the approach that we took. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, if you like Chinese culture, then why not get a game made by Chinese people? Yeah, exactly. You know I mean? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, one second. I'm a little cold, so I'm going to change oh, yeah, my yeah, shirt. Yeah. yeah, do your thing. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoying that Pacific Northwest spring already. You know, it's, it's still winter until like June. Right. It's like, um, it's very gloomy, but I kind of like it. <laughs> yeah, I, I grew up here and then I moved away for a long time when I was in the military. So um, I'm, I'm used to it. I like it. I probably need to digest more vitamin D. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm used to it. I kind of like it. Um, the only time that I really don't like it is when I don't mind like light rain, but uh, heavy rain is kind of annoying because then I can't go out and do stuff. But like light oh, rain, yeah. I'm just used to. I'm just like whatever. It's like it's little 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 drizzle. That's fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. So as far as me, I had something in my brain that we were going to talk about <laughs> before I came back. Uh, all right, I'll, I'll come back to it. Perhaps I'll come back. Take to Take your perhaps. time. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, let's talk about uh, some of the work that you did that has really impacted my professional life. Um, and I just don't know how yet. So I'm curious, like to, uh, to ask you about this. So Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. So I have run Curse of Strahd. And it's one of my primary campaigns, at least it was last, um, last year, and I had to make so many, like, obviously, I had to make so many changes to it, like, which is why I run supplements like Shoes the Ancient. And like, I've uh, made a lot of changes to remove a lot of the racism, ableism and misogyny. And I'm very curious about um, your experience with Ravenloft and like your perspective and like you coming onto the team in order to write some stuff for it. There's a sort of relationship that marginalized people have with horror that is not always good. Like, because a lot of the time, the identities of marginalized people, uh, whether it be uh, people of color, whether it be uh, indigenous people, whether it be um, people with disability um, or queers, all at some point have their identity used as like either a punchline or as a way to make you somehow monstrous. So what has been like your relationship in approaching both writing for Ravenloft and then your relationship prior to? Yeah, so I think, um, so it's funny because uh, Schneider basically reached out to me um, after Zhangxi happened, uh, Zhangxi happened, uh, either pronunciation is fine, but uh, after that happened, um, he reached out to me and he was like, hey, like, you know, we have, uh, we have ICATH on the line, uh, you know, in the pipeline, and we want to have someone um, write about it. And, you know, based off of your work with Jansha, like, you know, can you do something with that? And so I was like, yeah, sure, I'll take a look. And so um, previously, like my experience with Ravenloft was mostly through Strahd, like it was just like, you know, that's it. Uh, I didn't really play any other, um, any other realms or uh, dark with any other dark lords, really, because I just didn't have the interest in it. Um, mm -hmm. And so when I read about uh, Tian Chang, um, she's the Dark Lord for ICATH. Uh, she was, um, I felt like she was a very one dimensional character and her, uh, her space was like very short, like compared to the other Dark Lords uh, that were available, like ICATH was pretty short and not very interesting or exciting. And so, um, 
I think I wanted to play with the idea of like, she has, uh, I believe it's like her. And then there were like four other characters. I forget if there were like sisters or daughters or whatever, but like um, I wanted to sort of change that and make it more gruesome uh, because I think that like her character initially was supposed to be sort of like this dragon lady and she's like super hot and you know, whatever. It's like one of those stories. And so I was like, I kind of want her to be like, so first of all, have like a gruesome story um, because like the reason why dark Lords become dark Lords, I mean, they, they just go through a lot, right? Like it's like basically a very bad traumatic experience and they continue yeah. on like, you know, uh, doing bad decisions and eventually they end up surrounded by this. Like that's basically what happens. Yeah. Right. And so um, for her, I wanted to think about like, you know, what caused her to get taken away into this you know, into ICAF, like what, what happened? What was the process like? And so um, what's the process of becoming a dark Lord? Um, and so uh, I wrote a little bit about basically like, you know, she uh, was from like a war torn, uh, you know, world. She was, you know, she had a lot of terrible things happen to her. And eventually she was like, you know, she had a dragon mentor. That's how she learned magic. And she found happiness for a brief moment, but, uh, you know, that was quickly taken away because she was so full of rage and vengeance and she still wanted to like, you know, she still wanted more. Um, And so she had children already at that point, but like uh, her, her motivation was still to like avenge her family that was taken away from her when she was a child. And she just like, you know, despite everyone around her, like it's despite all of like, you know, the, uh, her family members and her friends and everything, um, you know, she still was, was driven by, uh, by trying to tear everything around her apart. And so that, um, was uh, sort of her motivation for like going in, you know, being taken away and like put into ICAF. And so uh, there she experiences like her, her daughters, but her daughters are just like, you know, the, the, the monstrous versions of her real life daughters. And um, you know, the city that she has, the city that she lives in is now constantly being shaped by what she wants, but it's not really what she wants. And so she doesn't really know herself in that sense either. And so it's just like this labyrinth of like, you know, the space constantly evolving. It's like this weird dream world. Uh, It's a lot of her, like, it's basically like her subconscious, but like it's turns like into a nightmare form and then Mm -hmm. in a real physical nightmare form. And so um, that's sort of the approach that I was taking with, uh, with, with Icath and her space. So it gives her a little bit more of that, like, you know, she's a little bit more three-dimensional now versus like what it was before. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I love this in the first in the first sentence of uh, their little biography blurb. Her home was destroyed by a colonizing force. Um, mm-hmm. That little blurb there, I'm just like, wow. So it's like finally we have a wizard's product that reckons with the fact that colonizers <laughs> exist. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So that I in whenever I play uh, the Countess, which you know, people have mixed feelings about as far as like my my community and stuff, because everyone wants to bang her pretty much. But like, at the same time, like she portrayed like an evil person uh, that 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 people like that lawful evil colonizer. And that's I think that's a sort of a thing that if we're talking about like sensitivity reading, we're talking about cultural consultants and stuff like that. When Strahd was written, it feels very obvious that that sort 
of like storyline, that sort of thread in the plot is totally missing because like you hear about all this stuff that's mentioned that Strahd had done. And then you like if you just even shift your perspective like a little bit, it's like, okay, so what what was the perspective of anybody, literally anybody else within uh, this realm? And there's like almost no information about that. It's literally just all about Strahd. So you could say that's perhaps intentional because the colonization wiped out all of those other cultures. But at the same time, like you could still have that element in the story and provide more about all these other cultures that were wiped out um, by this colonizer. Like you could have like the indigenous people like still represented in some way or another, like the elves, for instance, or the people uh, that lived around Yester Hill um, or, you know, some of these other, you know, anything. But it's just not present at all. Um, So, yeah, it's one of my it's one of my biggest gripes with it. And it's not necessarily like they wrote the wrong thing. It's like they didn't write anything. Yeah. So it's just not in there. So, yeah, I agree. (sighs) Yeah, it's it's definitely sort of one of those things where it's just like, like if we take the perspective of any other character it would make it a lot more fun and rich and like, you know, exciting to play in. Right. And so um, I would say like as creators, that's something that we sort of have to take into consideration when like creating things Um, just like not only like, you know, making these cool characters that like, you know, do things and whatever, but also just like considering like, what are the, what are like the motivating aspects or the human aspects of like, you know, making the story more rich and full? Yeah, I would be and I wonder if this is out there, but I would be really interested in like a supplement or um, sort of a a more fully faceted uh, Barovia that included all those missing elements. But I don't think I'm the right person to write that. So I if anybody wants to write that, let me know and I will I will help you. <laughs> Uh, I wrote. Uh, uh, I did write an MCDM article, oh. uh, which is full of NPCs in an unnamed, uh, not Barovia, <laughs> not um, an area that is related to D and D. and it's like a dark comedy type uh-huh. of thing. It's. Um, uh, I could send it to you later. To like, yeah, take, please. Yeah, to take a look. But it's very much. It's very much like a. Um, like a what we do in the shadows type of like energy. Yeah. Um, and the characters are just like, like we have one character who's like a very, very big fan of like the dark Lord or mm-hmm. we don't call it the dark Lord in this. Uh, we call it like whatever, but like they're um, basically just like a, like a, a super fan. And they're uh-huh. just like, they have this like weird parasocial relationship. Oh my God. This sounds amazing. Um, and we have like the personal assistant for like the dark Lord. And you have to like, help them like they basically join your party and you have to like make sure that they um like because they have motivations too like they don't want to be a personal assistant forever eventually uh-huh. they want to like do other things and so like More maybe power. you could like right exactly maybe you can convince them to do something else and so yeah. uh yeah it was a fun project to work on for sure yeah super cool let's talk about uh briefly let's shift to uh dune are you allowed to talk about dune I worked briefly on Dune. Oh, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna lie. I like. I wrote like a thousand words or two thousand words or okay, something like okay. that. Like it was very very small. Um, but it's it a great resume cool. builder. Yeah, yeah, it does make you look cool. <laughs> um, and then uh, you did some work for uh for Pathfinder. Um, how yes. how exciting is it that uh that uh the Chinese community had that um 
that new uh that new book i gosh i had slipping my do you know which one i'm talking about uh oh shoot i'm like <laughs> yes uh, uh I, don't, I don't want to say the wrong thing i can't remember what it's called i'm gonna look it up yeah yes. i know yeah, I, I wrote on it and I can't oh did remember. you <laughs> yeah <laughs> um it's just because it feels like so long ago anytime yeah. you, you probably have this too where it's just like you know after you've written something you just like forget it instantly yeah you know honestly it makes for a healthier lifestyle because then like when stuff doesn't come back or like you fire off emails you're just like if you fire and forget then it's like yeah. it's less difficult just for your life to get by because then you're not worried about it you know Exactly. Uh, I think it's Tian Sha, but... Um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Is it Tian Sha? Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I didn't want to, like... Because yeah, yeah. I also have another product that's coming out that has the word Tian in it, so I was just like, okay, yeah, okay. I just want to make sure. Yeah, I was um, I was talking to... Uh, I believe I was talking to Daniel Kwan about it um, when uh, he was recording on the podcast previously. So, yeah, I... You know, that's amazing that, like, if we look at something like that and we're like, hey, um how did we get this many like Asian writers on one project? It's like, they just all appeared out of no, they've been there the whole time. Like right, <laughs> they've yeah. been around. So it's like, it, it just makes me think about like the state of the hobby, perhaps like even like 10 years ago and like representation and just it's, it's lack of it. And how many products I see even recently, sometimes on like Kickstarter and stuff to just have very, just inappropriate, um, just very inappropriate like material that's not written by the appropriate team yeah so i would love to hear more about forgery this is a new thing you got going uh why should people go and find it uh this is on indiegogo uh please tell us more yeah absolutely so uh forgery is a solo horror role-playing game where you are playing a um a disgruntled, jealous uh, art forger who is down on her luck and uh, she's randomly been commissioned by someone with a lot of money uh, to recreate a cursed demonic painting. And as you're painting this, as you're uh, playing through the story, uh, you actually have paint by numbers. And so you're recreating like this artifact. You're creating this, this cursed painting as you play. Uh, and yeah, so it's on Indiegogo right now. I think we have about, oh, I don't know a few days left uh but uh after like the the campaign ends you'll still be act have access to like you know uh to getting the game and checking out the different pledge levels um it is a very dark game uh it's not for children it is very uh it's r-rated basically uh i would say and um I think it's just like like a, a game that I feel like is very personal to me because professional jealousy is something that like I uh, have tackled with in the past. Um, I don't think that uh, I'm as jealous <laughs> or as uh, or I I don't think that like you know I. Uh, I think that this game was like very cathartic for me in order to like, you know, to, to play with like these themes and play with these ideas and just sort of like, think about like, you know, Hey, why do we think about stuff this way? And just sort of like play around with this idea and this theme. Right. Um, and I'm also sort of like sick of getting hired on to, I mean, at this point, uh, writing 
games about like Chinese culture and Chinese experiences and like, you know, all that stuff now. Now I'm just like, I, I want to do other things. <laughs> I can, yeah. I can write other things. I can do other things. It's not just, you know, it's not just about the Asian experience about like, you know, it's, I, I can do other things as well. So this is sort of my, my way of tackling that. Yeah, that's super cool. I, I love the concept. It kind of reminds me, sort of gives me the vibe of like um, Dorian Gray, which is uh, you've, you seem to, based on your reaction, you seem to have read that, but, um yeah so like the the queer icon of like that era i suppose and uh i i really like stories like that we actually have a we have a, a similar sort of vibe for one of our characters in the vineyard rpg uh called the siren and we sort of recreated the uh sarah madsen wrote this one and we recreated the dorian gray sort of story with a with a statue essentially of this person mm-hmm. who made a deal with uh the vineyard in order to retain their beauty after they uh survived a fire in their theater they're a performer and stuff and so um part of that deal is like to to reap souls and stuff to reap to reap people um for the vineyard um but yeah so and the the character's a a banshee essentially but yeah so i i think um that sort of horror experience it's very personal it's very interesting that it's a a single person rpg i see more of these popping up lately um why do you like solo rpgs i think for me, I uh, there are a couple of things, right? So the first one is that this is a game where an artifact is created at the end. And I think that artifact creation, while it is fun when you're doing it with a group, uh, while you're you know playing with a group, I think it's more fun when you're doing it by yourself. And so uh, creating an artifact by yourself, I, I enjoy much more. Uh, than, you know, than with like a a table of folks. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing for me is that um, I like having these experiences, which are cathartic in nature, which are uh, very much about like, you know, introspection and just like trying to understand like more about yourself through playing like a different character. And so I think those are the two reasons why I really enjoy them. Uh, I'm not sure why other people enjoy them so much. Maybe the same reasons. Uh, but uh, yeah, for me, those are uh, that's sort of like why I really like them. Um, do you have anything that you have like coming up on the horizon that you want to talk about? Anything that you want to highlight from your uh, past period of work that you're really excited to share with people or something that you're working on right now that you'd like to tell people about? Yeah, so working on a lot of things <laughs> all the time. Um, and uh, for I guess like for forgery specifically uh, I am working with like a whole bunch of different people on it Um, just wanted to highlight like Indrani who's making the dice for it Um, also uh, wanted to highlight um, you know all the the people that uh, that I'm working on with the uh, with this product so uh, the cover is made by Alex Ekman Lawn Uh, Ruby Lavin did like the graphic design with Matthias Benici also did like the cover design. Uh, Karen Twelves, fantastic editor, made sure that I made sense in the actual text. Um, and we just hit our stretch goal. And so uh, for Austin Taylor to join on the team so that that way we can like create a small game together. Uh, previously, Austin and I, we were on, uh, we were working together on Deimos Academy with Amanda Call. And so it's another one of those games where it's like, you know, you're creating artifacts, you're making like little paper dolls and the paper dolls are going through uh 
are adults. They represent your adult self returning back to your old boarding school uh, where you were there as children. Um, and uh, you're just basically facing your fears and your fears manifest in like a physical world. And you're trying to, you're trying to overcome them uh, by going into different, different rooms. Uh, and uh, you're going through this like coloring book type of thing. And so um, that game is in production right now. Uh, we are, we've handed it off to the printers. They are dealing with that. Uh, so I don't have to <laughs> deal with anything anymore. Um, so that's very exciting. Um, I'm trying to think what else am I working on? Oh, for forgery. Uh, Carlos Cisco and I actually wrote a screenplay for it and that's being, he's handling it. Okay. <laughs> Carlos okay. is handling it uh, or his agent's handling it. Yeah. Oh, I think the, sorry if the lawnmowers are back again. Um, <laughs> it sounded like a motorcycle. Does it sound like a motor? Yeah, it does oh. kind of, right? Yeah. Um, try and think what else, uh, is going on. Uh, forgery is a part of a, a trilogy. So hopefully if there's a lot of interest in this, then, uh, I'll be working on the next two games. The second one's going to be about fashion. Uh, so you're going to be making, um, making your own sort of like fashion accessory, uh, versus like a paint by numbers. And then the third one is going to be about music. So I'm hoping that, um, you know, it will be, sort of like you're sampling music and you're sampling like uh, sounds that, that are available to you uh, and playing around with them that way. Um, along with that, I have a few other games that are coming out uh, this year. Uh, I have a, ma- I have a mass market game, a mass market party game that's coming out to target and Walmart. Oh, um, you're going to be a fucking month. target. Oh yes. my God. Oh my God. <laughs> it's really funny. I mean, D and D's in target. So I'm just like, okay, like yeah. you know, Ravenloft yeah. is there. Um, <laughs> but it's really funny to me that like I have a mass market party game. Um, it's called no context. And basically you're uh-huh. um, matching up like a picture. It's uh, we're using the Mr. Levenstein IP. So um, we licensed the game out to uh, skybound and it's uh, it's designed by myself and Jason Slingerland. And uh, basically what happens in the game is uh, you're taking pictures and you're trying to guess what other people's pictures are with other pictures <laughs> so you you have like um you have a target photo like a target picture like a target image and uh you have a hand like a deck of uh cards which also have images on them and you're trying to basically like say um you know you're trying to put those pictures next to a yes or a no and you're trying to make people guess which of the target pictures is yours with other pictures. It's very confusing, but it's very fun. Like, yeah, um, yeah it's, it's hilarious. Uh, Cause like, once you start playing, you're just like, how did you get to this image? Like, why did you guess this image? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, and then you have to explain to the other players, like, this is my reasoning behind why I chose this image uh, to say yes or no to try to explain to you. It's this target image that I'm trying to describe with these other images. Yeah, I I see that here. There's uh, if I've uh, nocontextgame.com. Um, it looks like there's a free download where you can just check it out if you want to just take a look oh, at it. Our but, yeah. publisher didn't tell us this, but yes. <laughs> 
yeah, so I as long as I'm on the right game, <laughs> I think I'll, I'll send it to you real quick, uh, the, the link. Banana Chan, it was really great to have you on. This has been this has been wonderful. Um, I've had thank a really you. good time. Thank you for coming on. Sounds good. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Hi, thanks for listening. If you want to support me, you can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash isfriday, or you can find some of the work that I'm doing at vineyardrpg.com if you want to pre-order the book that we made.